If you look on your bulletins, it says that we will be in 1 John today. That is wrong. I changed my mind. Uh, I decided instead, I, I, want to, I want to pick up a recurring sermon, sermon series that we do at BCC. We take it up for a little while, and then we put it down, and then we come back to it. it it's often in the summer that we do this. Uh, and I just, as I was working through John, 1 John, and I was working through a series in Hebrews, uh, I just... I just I felt dissatisfied for some reason, or unsettled for some reason, and when I thought about doing, was reading in the Psalms, and I was like, you know what, I, I, that's what I feel like what we need to do, and so we're going to spend some time in a few weeks in the Psalms, and uh, this series, I, we call it uh, Songs for Life. The Psalms have been an important part of God, the lives of, of God's people for almost 3,000 years. Uh, that's how long the Psalms have been around and how uh, critical they were. Uh, it is the heart of the spiritual life of the people of God. I, I didn't grow up kind of really understanding that or, or really studying the Psalms. I, I knew that if you got just the New Testament, it usually came with Psalms and Proverbs, but I didn't understand why. Uh, but it's this... Uh, I mean, Luther talked about the Psalms being the entire gospel uh, in poetry, right, summed up. Uh, they are, a, 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 they give us the language of prayer. That's, if you want to know how to learn to pray, it is in the Psalms that you'll learn to do that. They give us a, a vocabulary, uh, things that we uh, n- a way to express the things that we're feeling. Uh, and it's an important expression of our faith privately and corporately. We start almost every single worship service with a reading from the Psalms. Um, but they're not all songs. We call it songs for life. Uh, because, but uh, they are prayers, praises, hymns, liturgies, meditations, laments um, that cover like... Every aspect of living for God in a world that is antagonistic to his ways. Um, and the structure of the Psalms is not random. I, I tend to, I think I used to, I used to believe that, or maybe I just never thought about it. I just assumed that there was these lyrical poems, these songs and prayers uh, kind of just thrown together and collected um, in, in a way that, that didn't make, maybe didn't, didn't necessarily mean anything, the order that they were in. Uh, like it was just some kind of random, it was like the time that Sp- uh, Prince moved all of his uh, songs from Spotify and uh, none of my playlists made any sense anymore because those were critical pieces in the movement of my understanding my playlists. Have, I think about those things because I grew up pressing play and record to make mixtapes. Uh, and so like I think about the first song and the last song. And, and so, you know, when Prince's songs were gone, nothing made this is awful. And so I think of the songs that way, like these random collection of songs on a playlist, and that's not the case. They're actually structured intentionally. It was actually after the exile, the, the, um, they, the God's people were living in Jerusalem, and they still disobeyed in, in, in Israel, and, and so God sent armies to take them away. And it was after the exile that these psalms were collected and put in the order that we find them in today. The last five psalms, uh, 45 through, sorry, 145 146 through 150, they all end in this like hallelujah, this command to praise Yah. Uh, It's the fitting conclusion, this crescendo of this is what we do is we praise God. Uh, Psalms 1 and 2, actually, they kind kind of stand on their own as like a heading over the entire book of the Psalms. 
What does it mean to live a blessed life? Uh, it is to dedicate yourself to the study of God's word. And just like, it, it, even kind of a reflection of the, the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, there are actually five books in Psalms. And in your English translation, sometimes they'll have those headings where it says, hey, this is the first uh, book and this is the second. There's, there's five books uh, of the Psalms. They're busted into five different things with the movements that move along, and they are amazing. 73 of them are attributed to, roughly 73 of them, are attributed to David, depending on who you ask. Um, There are 12 to Asaph, 11 to the sons of Korah, Moses and Solomon show up. 49 of them are anonymous. Just songs, psalms, prayers uh, that have been included and arranged in an order trying to move us through the entire understanding and meaning of what it means to be a follower of God. It's uh, a marvelous book. I cannot overemphasize its importance. So today we're going to be in Psalm 3. Psalm 1 and 2 kind of heading. So Psalm 3 is the first of the uh, book, uh, of book 1. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read it to you. Psalm of David. When he fled from Absalom, his son. So this is the first, by the way. I know that you guys are, my bad. I'm sorry. Uh, this is, uh, I've, so this is the first psalm with a heading, a title. That's the title of the psalm. That's not something that your editors added. That is actually part of the text. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? All right, I'm sorry, let's stop right there. All right, so, hey, so Lord, when you see Lord in all caps, uh, that's just a way of being respectful for a tradition that's been around for a long time to not say the name of God. But if you see the word Lord in all caps, it's the, it's the divine name Yahweh. All right? Oh, Lord, I'm going to get through it this time. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him and God. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I I cried aloud to Yahweh, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, to Yahweh. Your people be, your blessing be on your people. Ah, so good, so good. So here's the deal. Um, A big part of being human um, is having emotions, uh, emotions actually, some of the most recent research, or not even recent research, for, for a while people kind of understood that, that emotions actually often pre come before rational thought. We, we feel something necessarily sometimes, often before we, we think a thing. Um, if, if you've ever been around children, you know this is true. right? Like They feel a thing before they've thought it through. If you've ever been on the internet, you also know that it's true. Most people seem to be reacting from how they feel without necessarily a lot of cognitive thought going into, not a lot of follow-up, right? But but we, another way of saying that is I have strong, this is the first I'm hearing uh, about this topic, but I have very strong feelings about 
right? Like that's what people kind of, that's how people live. And so emotions are part of being a human. Um, And so this guy uh, wrote back in the 60s, he wrote this, I love this. We think more than we can say. We feel more than we can think. We live more than we can feel, and there's much else besides. I love that. We, we feel more than we think. It's why when you get upset, you have to, if, if, you're, if you're wise, you'll stop and you'll pause and go, I need to get my thoughts in order before I speak. Because my feelings have hold on me. There's a, some, in some way, they exist almost at a deeper level than our conscious thought. And it's a big deal because... If you think about it, a lot of the way that we run our daily lives is because of our emotions. I mean, any, I, I didn't think I was, but I am an emotional leader, right? If I'm happy, I like to eat. If I'm sad, I like to eat. I, I get through a tough day. I can't count the number of days that I've come home and in the fridge, no lie, chicken breast and uh, asparagus, and I'm going gonna, gonna, gonna to do this. I, and I get home at the end of the day, and I'm like, no way do I have the emotional uh, strength to do that. We're gonna, I know where they make pizza. Let's just go there. Because it's sad. I get sad. I just want to eat. Right? I'm an emotional eater. It's not only just what we eat, those how we react, how we respond. It's, it even affects our, our emotions. Even affect how we understand people. Our response to moral dilemmas often comes from feeling before thinking. And the Psalms. What's so amazing about them is that they address the full range of human emotions. Um, the Bible isn't just these propositions of like, think this and do that. That's in there, right? It's important what you think and you do. Uh, but there's more than that. It, it, the Bible addresses the whole of human existence, the whole of human experience, and that involves emotions. It, it, part of what it means to be a parent, or part of, of being a parent is when you're raising your kids, is, is you're teaching them how to manage their emotions early on. I'm bad. I, was, I was bad and still bad at that, right? I can remember uh, Gibson being very upset about a thing and me sitting down and going like, okay, can you express to me in words what you're feeling on the inside that caused you to behave this way? And he like, was just like looking at me like I'm a crazy person. And I'm like, you're right, I'm 46 and I can't do that. Why am I asking an eight-year-old to do it? But it's teaching them to manage these emotions. And we know that. We, we sense that. As if you're around them, like they just, you don't understand why they're doing the things they're doing or acting the way they're doing. And you try to help them sort through what they're feeling. Part of being a parent is teaching them to manage that. Part of them being, a, part of being an entire human being is learning to do that even as we grow and mature as adults. Learning to manage and sort our feelings. What I love about the Bible, well, there's a lot of things, right? But the thing I'm thinking about right now that I'm loving so much about the Bible is that it is, look, so there's two kind of basic oversimplifications about feelings, right? Um, one is that they don't matter at all, right? They're irrelevant. That's an oversimplification. Like, put your feelings to the side and think about it. I'm that way. If I'm ever in a conversation with somebody, I'm, I'm trying to be better, but, but historically, I've... I, if you're ever in a conversation and someone has said to me, well, I just feel, I don't know that I've ever heard what comes after those four words. Because they keep talking in my head, the Magnum P.I. theme song just starts playing. And they're just over there talking, and I'm like thinking about a guy with curly hair and a mustache driving a Ferrari, because that's my favorite TV show of all time. 
And they're just talking over there, and outside, out loud, I'm saying, mm-hmm, yes, what you gonna do? Yep, I understand, what you gonna do? I'm saying, but inside, TC's flying a helicopter, right? Like, that's, that's just how, I, I kind of just want to take the feelings and pull, pull, just push them out of the way completely. It's been my nature. That's not good. It's also not true. Sometimes it's the A-team. But the nature of being human means that these humans are full of these things, and your feelings actually do matter. The other opposite error, the other oversimplification that you hear, that, which may be kind of the reigning thing today, is that your feelings are everything. It only matters what I feel. Do not confuse this conversation with facts. <laughs> it only matters what I feel. The Bible will have neither dehumanizing position. It holds a much deeper, beautiful, more nuanced understanding of what it means to be a person. I mean, look at our Savior alone, right? He was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton because he was just going, and he'd be at places eating and drinking with people. That was one of the accusations thrown at him. He also wept at the tomb of his friend. He also taught very clear teachings. He also used story. He was the most fully human to ever walk the face of the earth, and he experienced his range of emotions. So, so the Bible draws us into these things and begins to teach us these things. This guy named John Calvin a long time ago said that the uh, Psalms are an anatomy of all part of the soul. What we do with our emotions is important, right? When I'm happy, when I'm sad, when I'm overwhelmed, when I'm frightened, when I feel shame, what do I do with that? How do I sort them out in a helpful way, right? There's got to be a helpful and an unhelpful way of dealing with this, this important part of who we are. And what the Bible seems to say consistently in, in, in this psalm, we're going to get into it in a second, is that what we do is we take even that part of our lives and we take it and we work it out in God's presence. We don't just take out like, hey, this moral yes or no in God's presence, this teaching and this hard teaching in God's presence and this sin and failing. Yes, all of those things, but also our feelings, our emotions, working them out in God's presence, being honest about them. And this psalm, this first psalm in this book, Psalm 3 is, is, it's about what might be the most fundamental emotion, human emotion. It's about fear. My experience is that fear in my life and the people's life that I, that I get a chance to talk to and, and uh, that have been honest and you get to read about and hear their stories, fear does far, has far more control over us than we think it does. Uh, it is... It, somebody told me one time, and I believe it to be true, now that I've thought about it, that anger is not a primary emotion. It's a secondary emotion. It, it's, anger is usually coming from something else. And, and as I began to think about my life and try to, try to put together, like, when I get angry, why is it? Usually it's fear. Usually I'm afraid of something. Usually it is because I am terrified of losing something, being seen a certain way, not being safe, not having what I need. Usually there is a fear, a recognition of my own inadequacy uh, to handle a situation. And that, my response is often anger. 
to be aggressive sometimes because I'm afraid. And that's what this psalm deals with. Um, It's not surprising that this is true, right? That that anger is so fundamental. If you go all the way back to Genesis, the kind of story of how we got to where we are, uh, Genesis 3, the first thing that happens when human beings sin is they realize that they're naked. Shame enters the world. And what do they do as a response? They hide. Here's the thing. Part of being human is this very, very difficult thing that exists inside of us that pull us in opposite directions. One, one of our most fundamental desires is to be seen. You can see it in a baby. You hold a baby, and and as long as you're looking at them, a lot of times, if there's someone that they know, a caregiver, they just want you to look. And you look away, and they'll start making noises. They have mirror neurons in their brain. They are designed for that connection. Our deepest desire is to be seen. The hard part is it's also our deepest fear as we get older. What if they see me for how I really am? Which I think is one of the appeals of social media, right? I can feel, I can be seen, but only what I curate. Downside is it lacks a real connection, right? So we don't get what we really, what we really want out of it. But, but our deepest desire is to be seen, and it's also our deepest fear. So much of what drives us is fear. So this is what it says. I think that the Bible points early on in the Psalms that what we do with this fear is that we pray it. We pray our fears. And this is how we pray our fears. It starts off this way. Oh, Yahweh, how many are my foes? Our first response when we feel afraid, when we look at the struggles and the things that are going on in life and we feel overwhelmed, I think our first response should, our first response should be to cry out to God. As we mature in Christian faith, it should be our immediate response. Early on in your Christian walk, it may, maybe even longer than I want to admit, my response to fear, my response to sin is to run away or to try to handle it myself, to, to accomplish this in my own strength. David's initial reaction in this psalm, or his, his direction in writing this psalm, is that when we are in trouble, when we are afraid, our first response is to cry out to God. Our immediate, our reflex action is crying out to him. I think that we tend instead to either try to muster up the strength on our own, bury down some kind of fear that we have, pretend like it's not a real thing, react in other ways. That junk comes out sideways, right? When we try to do that. Or we, we'll take it to other people, right? Hey, I have this problem. Let's talk about this. Or to a trusted friend or to a, a parent or some other confidant to go to them and say, I need to work this out. And I'm not opposed. You should go to your friends. You should go to your, the people, that your, your community. You should go to these people to work out these things. But I just don't think it should be our primary and first response. Once we go to God and we cry out for help, we cry out for salvation, then we go to our friends and go, this is what I'm struggling with. Help point me to Christ. We first thing that we do is cry out to God. The second thing is this. I think that you need to, that we need to, that I need to find and acknowledge the fear in my heart. 
to figure out why it is the way that I, why I feel the way that I do. Why, if I'm angry, what is the fear behind it? If I, am, if I find myself running away or hiding or withdrawing, is there a fear? What is it that is behind it? Figuring that out in God's presence. So in David's situation, in this story, because the heading tells us it's a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Here's what's going on. It's near the end of David's reign. David is king. Scott has declared that Solomon will be the next king. His other son Absalom has taken over the king. He's brought an entire army in and run David out of Jerusalem. David is fleeing from his son who is trying to kill him. There's an army, 12,000 strong, looking for David as he runs away. I mean, that's not a little thing. I mean, there's the physical fear of an actual army chasing you down. Probably not a situation you and I will find ourselves in. Let's hope not, right? There's a physical threat to his life. But can you imagine the emotional damage of your son trying to kill you? The the weight of what kind of father that you've been, that he must be feeling, that it's come to this, that his son's tried to kill him, trying to kill kill him and depose him? Not only is there the the mental and the the physical threat, there's also the emotional threat of what am I supposed to do now? I'm supposed to be the king. Where do I go? Who, Who am I if I'm just hiding in the hills? What's going on? And then there's the spiritual threat. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. He's like, they're just, they're just enemies on enemies on enemies. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. It's a spiritual attack. They're looking at David and saying, well, clearly God's done with David. Maybe Absalom's the next guy. This is not just David trying to avoid a spear. This is David reckoning with the life that he's lived. Like David has contributed to much of this in his life. Through his behavior, through what he's done, through his betrayal, mur- mur- which include murder and uh, uh, probably taking, some, taking a wife by force, like all of these things that he's done. He has contributed, right? He has, things that he's done have led him to this place. And his prayer is these enemies rising against me, there are so many, not just physical, but the emotional and the spiritual attack. God, these enemies are stacked upon stacked upon stacked. I am terrified. And our reality, that we're probably not ever going to find ourselves hiding in a cave like David has many times in his life. The reality is I, I do think that we find ourselves assaulted by so many enemies. And we can find ourselves in a place where fear is underlying some behavior or some action, or we're just terrified and we know it. I think that we cannot forget that those who follow Christ have been promised a constant attack. Constant attack. You have, there are pressures forcing you and pushing you in different directions. There are things contributing to how you feel. Uh, forces in this world and, 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 and spiritual forces pushing us and attacking us. It's all through scripture that we live a life of constantly becoming, people constantly coming after us. First uh, Peter 5 uh, is the memory verse for this week. Uh, it just happened to be that way, the memory verse they called up. Uh, I don't want to say happened to be that way. Let's use the word providential. First Peter 5. Memory verse for this week says this, 6 through 8. No, 5, 6 through 8. Here you am. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that all, at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to, to devour. Be 
diligent. Be vigilant. Stay awake. There are forces in this world trying to steal you away, your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, to take your, any, take your mind and your heart off of following Christ. It is a constant assault. It is a constant attack. And when we find ourselves in these locations, don't they seem to magnify? I mean, it's so often not like one thing that goes wrong. This one thing happens, and then another thing happens, and you can just expect that like four, five, six dominoes are going to fall after this, and everything's going to come unwound. Because not only are you fleeing for your life physically, but while you're fleeing, your emotions are beating you down. The, the, uh, the spiritual attack is beating you down, and you feel like you are going to drown. How many are our enemies? may not be armies, physical armies, but there are enemies trying to drag you away from Christ, from following Christ. And so what, Pete, what, what, uh, sorry, what the psalmist does, what David does then after this is he begins to rehearse what he knows about God. But, verse three, you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. He begins to rehearse what he knows of God. This is what God's like. And for David, the, the, in the Old Testament, and even into the New Testament, uh, but specifically in the Old Testament, the height of who God is and what he's like, his character is shown in the Exodus. His reclaiming of his people from slavery. He is a God who delivers. He is a God who makes promises and delivers on those promises. So God begins to, so, so David begins to rehearse these things, but you're my shield. You're the one that protects me. Not just from the front, when I'm assaulted from the front, but you're all around me. You will protect me in all of these ways. And he has this confidence that this is what God is like. Not only that, he says, you're my glory. Glory in the Bible is basically the word Weight significance, the thing that matters most. Hey, God, I have been run out of the kingdom. I have been, I do not know what's happening. My son is chasing me. And so all of the things that people would have looked at and thought of me as glorious, you know what? I realize in this moment, you're my glory. The thing that matters most to me about me, the thing that is most significant about me is you. His glory, and he says, you're the lifter of my head. The one who comes in, and it's the same, we use the same thing in, uh, in English, you know, keep your chin up, right? You are the one who lifts my head up. Here's what's happening in this. David is rehearsing and going over not just who God is, but how he accesses the power and the might of God in his life, which is this, utter dependence. It's utter dependence. The complete and total abandoning of the ability... He's looking around and goes, there's nothing I can do about this. There's no strength that I have that can fix this. There's nothing that I can do. He finds himself in a place of utter dependence. If you know anyone that's been a Christian for a long time, there's a good chance if you have conversation with them and ask them when was the time they felt closest to Christ. My wife said it yesterday. We were talking, and she says, the time that I felt closest in my life, to Christ in my life was when things were the darkest. You know why? Utter dependence. <laughs> When you come to the end of your strength, when you come to the end of what you can handle, it seems to be our last resort to cry out to God. And this is where David finally finds himself. David actually has gotten in trouble in the past. Uh, God uh, was very angry with him and punished him uh, because when he got king and got mi- became king and when he became mighty and, and strong, he decided to uh, just go out and do a census and count the number of how big his army was. And God's like, don't do that. 
And he's like, but I need to know how many people are. And he goes and he counts his army just to go, this, look how big my army is. Look how great my might is. Look how strong I am. And God says, like, don't you understand? I took you from a sheep pasture and made you king, and now you think that you can handle yourselves? And I just, you kind of, David, how could you possibly think that you got here on your own? And I just, it's so amazing to even think about. And then I realized that that's basically my entire life. When everything's going great, it's really good that I'm handling all these things in my life. See how well it's going? The second something goes wrong, God, why are you doing this? And the psalmist in this prayer says, take your fears, take your lives. This is the pattern of the, of the believer to lay these things out in front of God, to lay our fears, to lay our struggles regularly out in his presence, to work them out, to know whether our fear is a healthy fear telling us to run or an unhealthy fear that is vague and just stirs up anxiety. To know how to deal with this, the only way to do this is in God's presence. But it's part, the only healthy way to do this is in God's presence. It's utter dependence. It is utter and complete dependence on God is where he finds himself. This is how he works in our life. It's not through some kind of self-generated optimism or some kind of strength that we can muster up from within, but it is in dependence on him. There's no solution or success for the follower of Christ without this. And the result is that we can sleep in peace, right? That's what he says. I lay down and slept, woke again for the Lord sustained me. It is a confident peace. And see, the thing is that we have even more reason to be confident than David did. David had these promises, yeah. But David didn't understand for sure how God was going to work them out. One of the promises that David believed was, because God had told him, was that you will always have a ruler on the throne. There will always be a descendant of David on the throne forever and ever and ever. Seems like hyperbole. But David believed it. Sure, you said it, so I believe it to be true. You and I know how that works out, is that a descendant of David will sit on the throne forever. That Jesus will come and sit on the throne. We see how he works that out. Not only that, David, from the moment of agony and pain, and he cries out to God, I don't know how you're going to fix all of these things. Even if you deliver, deliver me from this army, there's going to come a day when I am no more. And those, I have to trust that after me, you're going to continue to handle things. He has to look at the situation and just trust that God's going to deliver him. You and I have an interesting perspective this side of the cross where we can look at what God did and go, you know what, the worst thing that happened in human history, the innocent slaughter, or the cruel and vicious slaughter of an innocent man on a cross actually turned out to be one of the greatest, the greatest things that ever happened. Salvation for you and me through Christ. That he was slapped, that his, he was broken, that he was crushed so you and I can know that whatever we're going through, that our Father actually is working it towards our good. We get to see the, how the cross worked for our good. And so now we are called to believe and to trust and in utter dependence that whatever it is that we are going through, whatever it is that's threatening to drown us, if we bring it into his presence and, help us, he sort, and as he helps us sort it out, we actually can have a confidence that whatever it is that he throws at us is actually somehow going to work towards our eternal glory. We've seen it in Christ. We've seen it over and over again. So many people give testimony in their life of how that is true. We have a better perspective than even David did. And the result is, it should be when we do this, that we can take our fears 
worked him out as in his presence, and sleep confident that he is in control. Don't take your emotions and try to ignore them. Don't make them everything. Don't try to forget them. Take your feelings and your emotions about what's going on and weigh them against the truth of who God is. This is the Christian way. The Christian way is to say, yes, I feel these things. I see these things, and I am terrified. I live in a world that is terrifying. I wasn't as scared of the world as I am now. It was, you have kids, and you become terrified of the world, right? It's just, when I was 21, I thought I would never die. You have a kid, and you're like, crossing the street is probably terminal. Like, just like everything changes. But we live in a world that is full of dangers, that is full of things to be afraid of, that is a terrifying place in many ways. The Christian way is to take our fears and weigh them against the reality of a resurrected Jesus who promised that he is going to return and make a place for us. To weigh the fear of loneliness, to weigh the fear uh, uh, of loss, to weigh the fear, in, uh, the fear of inadequacy, to weigh the fear of shame against the reality of what Jesus has said about you, which is that you by faith are a child of the king. Which is, to, which is he said that about you that not even death will separate you from his love. He said that you have an inheritance beyond measure, that if everything was stripped of you in this earth today, that you would still have the inheritance that he holds safe for you in heaven. We take the things that are going on in our life, and we do not push them away. We do not ignore them. We do not have a say la vie attitude about them. We weigh them against the promises of God in Jesus Christ. This is what we do. Prayer is essential. The Psalms help us take this prayer and use it to fight fear. Let's pray. Father, what a miraculous thing that you not only have loved us, that you have not only come to save us, but that you have left us your word, that you have left us your scripture, that you have revealed yourself to us in a book that we might know what you were like, that we might know what it means to live. It's so deep and so rich, God. I pray that we reject simplistic answers of what it means to pursue you, pursue life. That we reject simplistic answers about what it means to be a person. That it is a deep and nuanced and beautiful thing to be a thinking being, to be a feeling being, to be a relational being. That it is a beautiful, rich, deep life. The Bible points us to that. Let us reject vigorously any oversimplification of what it means to feel, to think, to be. And instead, trust. It's just trust. Give us strength and courage to believe that you are sovereign and that no matter what you bring our way, what loss, what loneliness, what joy, what peace, whatever it is, you are working it for our good when we live in utter dependence on you. Give us that wisdom. Give us those eyes to see that you love us. As we come to the table to receive the, the body broken and the blood spilled that we may have life, may it comfort us. May it be a reassurance of all of the promises, all the truths that you have told us. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.